You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Hello, listeners. Today's episode is going to be a little different. Not different than I've done before, where I've done a couple discussions with no guests, conversations, lectures. So this time I decided to do one called Urban Warfare 101. Now you might ask, John, why didn't you do that as your first episode now that you're 70 plus episodes of the Urban Warfare podcast? It's a good question. Nonetheless, we're moving on. One of the reasons is that I, you know, luckily there's been more listeners uh, and there's been a wide variety of listeners from military to policy personnel to just regular civilians. And I come to find out that things that I take for granted, I shouldn't like the definition. So I, I developed this class for our 40th Infantry Division Urban Operations Planners course. Runs once a year. The next one is in August. There's no other one in the entire world. No other military that has a course solely dedicated to helping division and brigade commanders, staffs, key personnel understand how to plan for large-scale combat urban operations or large-scale combat operations in urban terrain Offense and defense. So we don't even call it stability because we only have a a short amount of time. One one of the two primary lessons that I start with on day one is urban 101. And and that's what I'm going to talk to you about today and hopefully a short amount of time. And why is urban warfare hard? You can go back into my podcast, look for that one. I, I highly recommend it. But one of the reasons I decided to do this one, now we're going to get into it. So this is basically a, a class and a course you get audio, so let me know if you like it, is that throughout my teaching career, since I taught strategy at West Point, I taught military tactics, uh, I was a ranger instructor, going way back, there's something called foundational knowledge, right? And in some realms of academia, somebody will argue that that's an old school way of doing things, right? It's rote memorization if you've been in the military for more than a day, you know that we we want you to remember a lot of things and actually use different memory tools like acronyms to help you remember things. And that's actually learning sciences. So I've gotten frustrated with people who say like, well, you don't need to do that. You don't need to memorize acronyms and all that stuff. And But every science, every one of them, and I actually had this, a great talk with a PhD with a program we set up to do learning sciences, who said, yeah, if somebody ever tells you that you don't need a, a foundational base of knowledge before you move along the Bloom's taxonomy, which is a, a very established uh, taxonomy of learning, where you start at the bottom, which is your, your knowledge, and then you go to comprehension, application, analysis, synthesis, and evaluation. When you start to work with some militaries, they want to jump to, you're not rote memorization, not not doctrine, but, you know, the actual application, problem solving, analysis and synthesis, creativity, things like that, argue strongly that you got to have a foundation. So John Spencer, why does that matter to urban warfare? Well, despite the fact 
that the world is more urban than it is rural. So in 2008, the United Nations Cities Project, which is a really great project to use for statistics and numbers, in 2008, roughly the, the, the world's earth went more urban than rural, meaning that more people lived in urban areas than they lived in rural. It went over 50%. But that's a very misleading number because that that takes the entire circumference of the globe, like literally places in sub-Saharan Africa or Antarctica where, where people just don't live. Most of the developed world is over 90% urban, right? Urban areas are the economic engines of nations. They are they share a root. So city and civilization share a root together because it's, it's about people, it's about civilization, it's about flourishing. But despite that, you may find it interesting that the military, I'll talk to U.S. military, but if you listen to our recent Urban Warfare Christmas podcast, the Christmas wish list that me and my fellow friends, fellow urban warfare scholars put together one of the wishes of my friend Stu Lyles was that people would not treat urban areas like I'm about to tell you, as in militaries. And my friend, my good friend Jason Giroux was on that podcast as well. Urban areas in the military, in most militaries, is treated as a special environment. Special environments include jungles, Arctic, mountainous, desert, urban. So, John, what's what's the not special? It's pretty much wooded areas. That's the not special. That's where most militaries, for a long list of reasons, focus. But if you actually pull that thread a little bit more, like, wow. So doesn't John Smitzer say that more fighting happens in urban areas than not lately? Let's say the last 20 years. And actually, there's a human function to it. N- name me a battle without saying name of an urban area. I mean, you could Bella Woods and things like that and the Folded Gap and and other, you could maybe, but I believe in strongly that, especially in the modern era, as much as the other area, we fought for cities, but now we fight in cities, which I got from my friend, Tony King, um, that the all roads lead to urban. With that increased urbanization of the world, with the size of militaries, all roads are leading to urbans. Look at the Ukraine war. Look at the Israel-Hamas war. Look at any war recently. It's about the urban areas. And the fighting happened in the urban areas because I argue strongly that the urban areas are your decisive battles. Because now you could say, well, what about in Ukraine? They're fighting in trenches and everything. Yes, indeed. But the decisive battles are the urban areas. So it, in our wish list, we, we, we strongly wish that the militaries wouldn't treat in every form of doctrine, organization, training, urban areas as a special environment. But especially in the training world, which is really what gets me to this foundational knowledge aspect, right? Entry level of a profession. Entry level of the profession, you learned all the, you learn how that, whatever is your banking doesn't matter what you do. You come in, you take your 101s, right? You take your foundational knowledge. Like you're not going to do problem solving of, of physics unless you have the foundations down, the principles, the uncontestable principles. I believe military science is the same way. Yes, military theory, military doctrine is always changing, but there are principles, rules, 
and there are foundational knowledge. And I believe that militaries will will treat wooded areas as their primary environment, and that's where they develop the fun, fundamentals, despite the fact that more fighting is happening in urban, and we believe strongly, me and my fellow urbanistas, urban mafia, believe why not start in the urban, since that's where you're always going to be, and treat the other places like special. But here's an example of the problem set. As growing up in, a, in the military, 25 years, to include as a private, as a sergeant, and what we taught at West Point to all the cadets are the are the foundations. Like you have to know certain things. Um, both um, one of the examples is how you treat the terrain. So I can tell you, you can walk up to anybody in the U.S. military and, and ask them. Maybe they won't know right off the top of their head, but they've been trained on, let's say the the rural areas, five major terrain features. Right? There's five of them. There's hill, ridge, valley, saddle, and depression. There's three minor, draw, spur, or clip. Like you get that drilled into you because it is foundational into understanding the tactical element of when terrain matters. And you learn about key terrain. You learn about all of these other things. You know how much you learn about urban? Nothing. Yeah, maybe you'll you'll face an urban in the professional military education. You know, you might do some room clearing. You might have a few buildings on an objective. You might have a planning scenario, one out of a hundred that's against an urban area. It's a different topic, but so what are the fun, what are the fundamentals of the urban terrain? So that led me to build this class, right? So the basis of this class, if you're a military person is, is what's in our books, right? In our doctrine, because I believe that that should be the starting point and in there should be the fundamentals, but I'm a simple guy. I'm an old infantryman. I want the basics first. So where are the basics? And if you look in the manual, it doesn't quite read that way because it's it's meant for certain levels. And here's an interesting fact, and, I know, and I've done urban doctrine with one of the guys I respect the most in all of doctrine field, uh, now uh, retired, uh, Rich Creed. Every bit of our books assumes a certain amount of knowledge. Like if you if a civilian wants to read the urban operations pub, they would be like, I don't get this. Because you don't have some of the fundamental uh, foundations in which the book assumes you have. I'm a simple guy, a ranger handbook. Uh, now the mini manual for the urban defender, it, it is literally like diagrams, acronyms, basics. So I tried to do that for our class. One to show that there's a problem here. There's a problem in militaries and in the world in general. If you don't, you live in cities, but you don't understand that there are basics to any urban area. It's just really fascinating as you think about it, uh, even in civilization, like it, it, it's an aside. There's, you know, basically in the U.S. military now, for long reasons, and I've written about these, if you ask a soldier about urban warfare, they think about buildings. They don't think about cities. They don't think about street patterns. They don't think about key terrain per se, like what is key, depending on what the mission is. They think about buildings. Unfortunately, and I hope we one day break this, they also think about close quarters battle, which isn't just about room clearing, but they think about room clearing. It's an aside, but it's going to take a generation to break. So let's get into it. What are the basics? What is the 101 of urban warfare? 
Well, it starts off with defining it. I mean, I think this applies to anybody. It doesn't matter your military or civilian. Like, what, what is urban warfare? And I was given a, a, a talk very recently, and that was the first question. And I, I still get, I still get uh, surprised by the question. I'm like, oh, not what is urban warfare? Like, okay, I bet we don't have an, a shared understanding of what urban is. Literally, depending on where you look, and let's say you look at the United Nations, who does the city report, or some massive organization that's global, the definition of urban literally can be everything that's not rural. Luckily, the U.S. military has defined that a little bit better, and there's a shared understanding that urban, by definition, according to the U.S. military, means three things. Real easy to remember. And I wish if I could be the godfather wave a hand that everybody in the U.S. military would know the definition of urban as much as they know the major terrain features on, on a map uh, for rule, or, you know, how to read a map, you know, you need to write up. Urban is defined as one, complex man-made terrain. So that, that's the buildings. It's made up of a population. And that's important. You don't have urban if you don't have people. And no matter what in urban warfare, there's always people. No matter what you do, there's always some amount of people. So you have complex man-made terrain. You have the buildings. You have a population who lives in those buildings. And then you have the infrastructure to support those people, the population. I'll say it again, urban. It's defined as this thing we call the urban triad. Triad. Yeah, it's three things. Urban is man-made terrain, complex man-made terrain, buildings, and other things. Um, a population and infrastructure to support them. So hopefully you can remember that. Now, what is urban warfare then? Actually, the book doesn't say that. Our books don't say that. But when I give the explanation, like, okay, if we agree on the urban is, one more time, complex man-made terrain, a population, and infrastructure. Well, then we add the word warfare. What is warfare? Ah, I don't want to go to that class, but it's different than war. War is the pursuit of political objectives through the use of force or the threat of use of force, which could also be a definition of strategy. Warfare is the actual fighting. So the, the clash of arms with weapons and tech and everything like that, it is the actual fighting. So urban it, warfare is fighting that happens on urban terrain with that has to be defined with those three components. Now, what the book does define though is urban operations, right? And I think this is important because we have these things in our mind called heuristics. So if I say urban warfare, you may think Call of Duty. You may think raid on Osama bin Laden. You may think you know, something else. Or you may think about clearing rooms. Ah, but urban operations, as definition, is any operation where man-made construction or the density of the population are the dominant feature that you've been assigned. I teach and I study urban operation across the spectrum of conflict, which includes everything from, because militaries do this, disaster relief, um, civil support to civilian agencies, to counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, to high-intensity combat against a enemy-defended city, that large-scale combat operation, worst, you know, most destructive, most lethal element is that along this spectrum is urban warfare, where it's a non-permissive environment, because that matters, 
you had, don't have host nation support. You don't have the people's support. It's literally an enemy city that you're attacking or for the purpose of controlling it, seizing it, or the purpose of securing it and clearing out the resistance, the fighters, the other military, whatever. That's the high end. So you know, if, if you don't remember anything from this podcast, remember the definition of urban includes those things. But now here we get to what are some other things I would wish people would understand to help them understand urban operations, right? You got to have these foundational knowledge. And if, if we were to teach a class on day one, this is what I would teach. Another thing that people don't realize is that urban areas, I guess I got to cover cities. So it's easy to kind of superimpose cities with urban areas, although it doesn't work that way because you have, you have town, villages, cities, mega cities, megalopolises. They're, they're, you, know, they're, you have mega cities growing into mega cities, creating these in, you know, along the, in the Asian uh, continent, along the, in the Pearl Delta. It's, it's pretty crazy if you think about it. So a city actually, the, de- the designations between these different types of urban areas is just their population size. Although there's not agreement on, on, a, on what cl- classifies a city. If you're in the UK, you have to have a rule decree in order to be a city. But generally, if you have more than 50,000 residents, you can pretty much say it's a city. Things below that are town, village. Okay. Most people don't understand that there, is a, there, is, there are patterns to cities. You know, cities pop up along trade routes, along coasts. There's a reason a city is there. And actually, there's a really good paper I wrote on can you destroy a city like Carthage or, you know, whatever. People think if you destroy every building, you've destroyed the city. But it's not. That's an aside. What I want people to talk to think about is that think about a city and its pattern. So there are in urban sciences, but I would want anybody to know that's just as much as I want them to be able to identify an, a hilltop on the map. I would love it if every person especially in the military, could identify what urban pattern is a city that we're getting ready to operate in, pass through, whatever. And there are four types. That's it. And I, because I'm an old NCO, I'm an old soldier, I like to make acronyms, although the book doesn't, to help you remember. And if I was to test somebody on it, it would be really quick. So you'd almost know it without knowing that you know it. And that's the beauty of acronyms that we use. So for the major urban patterns of a city, there are four. S-N-L, so like Saturday Night Live, S-N-L-S, satellite is the main one, right? So a satellite urban pattern means that there's a central hub and then there are outlying urban areas in which the, the central hub is dependent on these outlying urban areas, which you'll see in a lot of major cities. And the example I give in the class is Kiev, which I've been to multiple times since the um, illegal invasion of, of Russia it has a central hub, which is the kind of the older part of the city. And then you have to, there, there's a big gap and you get to these other cities like Bucha and Hostomel and Borbianka and all of this. The city, when it developed, it became dependent on these outside urban areas for resources. That's called a satellite urban pattern. When you have a central hub that's dependent on these outlying areas. Next one, network, which these two are the most common, really, a satellite and a network. In a network, you still have a, a dominant central hub, which relies on these outsiding, outside urban areas. But in a network, 
because of the growth of cities, you start to have other, the hubs themselves be dependent on other urban areas. And it's a network between them. That's why I call it a network urban pattern. So you can't really put your finger on the who's dependent on who. It's, it's all networked together and they may rely on different resources. So you have satellite, you have network. Next one is linear. Just think about a hilltop and, you, and there's a road running along a hilltop and then there are urban areas along that trade route, that road. But it's backed up against a natural piece of terrain like a river or a hilltop or something that's, you know, that's defining in this linear pattern. And then lastly, a segment which is just a really big urban area there's, that is grown in growth and there's no separation between the hub and it's just growing out. And you, it's segmented by the actual road pattern. It's almost like a Rome where you have, a, it's just a, a circular going out and you have these, pattern, you know, these segments that you could cut up into a pie and, and you would have that. One of the best examples I show people is of a segment is actually Baghdad because, um, most people don't know there's a real famous map. If you Google like Battle of Baghdad Belt or Map of Baghdad changes complete U.S. military strategy. Because again, our military doesn't think in like urban, even though we were stationed in Baghdad for, what is that, nine, three to... Well, once we killed a really famous dude, Zakari, and one of the pieces of intelligence, what they call it, pocket litter, was a map of the city of Baghdad, and I have a picture of it. It's really cool. And it's cut up into segments just like the city is because Al-Qaeda understood that you could attack the center of Baghdad without attacking into the center of Baghdad. You can attack in these different segments who had different roles in the city. And Al-Qaeda understood that, and that's what they were doing. Uh, so it's real fascinating. Why would you want to know the fundamentals of what the four urban patterns are? So next, the five functional areas of a city. So yeah, maybe hopefully I'm I'm opening your eyes that yeah, there's there's four main patterns of cities that John Spencer wants you to know. And it's really easier to think about them if you think about you know any city and the different types of cities, whether they're a satellite, a network, a linear, or a segment. Maybe you need pictures to help you this, but I'm hoping not. The other one which which we which is really important is called the functional areas. Every city has to have certain elements to it. In in that, in the really interesting, if you think about them, all cities have them. And they're called functional areas because they do things and they're what pop up when you have civilization and things start growing. And it comes important for military operations, but it's just really cool to know as much as, you know, if you have a hilltop, you've got a ridge and, in, and a lot of times you'll have a valley and in the valleys there's water things like that. So there's these five common function areas, functional areas of urban areas. And I, I, I made the acronym CRIMO, C-R-I-M-O out of it, but there's a core to every city, right? And if you go to, you go to Europe, it's a sign everywhere. And it was really, really helpful when I lived in Italy, you know, central and you had like a little circle with a dot on it. So think about that core of the city in the core periphery. Every city has a residential area. It's just a fact. I mean, whether it's apartment buildings or single purpose family houses, every city will have a place where it's pretty much just residential areas. Every city, especially a, a city, you know, a population over 50,000, will usually have an industrial area. 
So we went CR, now we're in I, industrial areas. And that becomes really important if you're studying urban warfare because every battle I've ever studied, well, not every battle, but most battles, there's something that really intense fighting happens in industrial areas. My friend Stu and I, who, you know, I talk through these ideals is because of the fact that in industrial areas, you have large lines of sight, you have strong buildings, lots of equipment. Uh, it, it, it seems to be, and if you think about it, Stalingrad, Mariupol, Severodonetsk, you know, all these battles you know, that you think about, there these functional areas become really hot spots of fighting because they're real defendable. There's lines of sight. You can bear, bring to, bring to bear a lot of your weapons, which you can't in let's say the city central, the city core, those urban canyons. So everyone will have an industrial area. A lot of our cities will have a military area where there's a base of some type, or you, know, it's just a thing. Uh, a lot of cities will have an outlying high rise area or a high-rise area in general, right? Uh, and it's not necessarily the core area either. It's just where a lot of high-rises popped up. Those are the five main ones that the books say. One of the things that I've gotten frustrated with that is not in the book is waterways. Um, if you think about most of the urban battles of time, there's some waterway that becomes important, whether it's the Tigris, the Euphrates, the Volgograd, uh, you name it. Uh, in the way, like every one of our battles, if you read our case studies that me and Jason Drew wrote, the the Stalingrad, Way, Aachen, Ortona, the, the river plays some way because most cities pop up along waterways. Even if you think about Gaza right now, the Wadi Gaza, which is which actually means river, but it's dried out. It's a separation between two areas. Um, these waterways become major obstacles, east and west, Mosul, Fallujah. I mean, uh, it, it's just a thing. So I wish that was one of the functional areas. So five functional areas that help people understand. Now, another one is infrastructure, because I told you urban is, which you know, there are other acronyms to help you break apart like society and, and populations like religious and we have these things called A-scope. But just in the basics, is like there are these elements of urban infrastructure as well that I would put into this urban 101 if I could teach every person in the, in the military uh, would be urban infrastructure because it becomes either protected sites or really you know, just in general, like no fire areas or things that if you break it, you, you should be involved, likely involved in the rebuilding of it. Or if you want to improve an area, things like that along the spectrum of conflict, knowing about these key elements of every urban area is important. So they're, they are economic, uh, economics and commerce, administration and human services, transportation and distribution, which is really important, communication and information, energy and culture. So I don't put that on my test if I was given the test. But I think it was it's important if I if you were to do this one on one and you could you know indi- really drive it into a, a what everybody knows in a science that would be one of them. Now the next one is even more so. The okay, I've kind of gone big picture like you know urban patterns, the definition of, of a city, definition of urban, brought that down into urban patterns and then functional areas. Everyone has residential areas has 
all these, you know, has a, a industrial zone, has a waterway, you know, all these things that be- may become very important in the operation or even understanding a battle. Now, the next one are the four types of urban characteristics as in the physical characteristics. So four types of urban physical characteristics. And they and you would help, it would, it would help you, I'm sure. If you had a picture of a building and I could walk you through these types of physical characteristics, but just help me out and just picture two buildings beside each other. Just two buildings. That's it. That's all I need. At the very top, and we're going to work our way down, is airspace, right? Because the airspace of urban areas is very important. Uh, air traffic control, um, even the high winds. If you go through like in Manhattan or any big city where there's high rises and things like that, there'll be different winds in that environment, which can have an impact on military operations or rotary wing op- you know, helicopters. You can have a, wires, all this stuff. That airspace um, becomes, is, is a, one of the, the physical characteristics that you can walk through on the urban train. The next one is the super surface, right? So that's the rooftops, like actual the top of the roofs. It's also, it's also the upper floors of a building, let's say, that's kind of open, you know, the stadiums and the towers that, that actually touching the top of something, that super surface. What's interesting with the super surface is it also includes what we call the intrasurface. Because if you're looking at a building, like, okay, I got above the building, that's the airspace, the top of the building, that's the super surface. What else do I got? Oh, I got intrasurface surface so that's in the interior floors and levels so inside the building like the floors that are inside that building that's called intrasurface the next one which is the one that most people want to focus on is the surface right the streets the roads the waterways what's on the surface of the terrain and then lastly but uh depending on the battle can be really important is super surface subterranean underground sewers Utility corridors, subways, tunnels, cellars, basements, all become very important. It can completely change the characteristics of a battle. And actually it has in places like Bakhmut and clearly in Gaza. When there's the presence of an underground that can mitigate, if you're the attacker, it can mitigate your effects. If you're a defender, it can improve your capabilities to defend. One more time, the four types of urban physical characteristics Above the building, airspace, top of the building, super surface, inside the building, the floors, that's the intrasurface, intrasurface. And then the surface itself, the roads, the streets, and then the subsurface, the sub-T. Hopefully you remember that. Now, let's go back to the surface, which I find is really interesting, although the urban sciences try to, try to change this up. If I could just have you remember that the street patterns... And that really matters. Matter of fact, there's been a lot of urban battles where there has basically been defeat when the military couldn't navigate either the the original street patterns or the street patterns that were formed. And it's not as simple as just having a rapid mapping capability or a map uh, or when your your GPS and things like that don't work. When you have high rises as much and things like that, satellite enabled, all this stuff, large conversation. But many cities, all cities, have a street pattern. Some are more organized than others. But there's three basic. Okay, it's it's rig, radial, 
irregular, and grid. Radial, think of that Rome situation where you have a central hub and then you have you, know, you have those clear rows that go out of the center hub. That's that radial, like a bike wheel. Irregular is when it's just, it's, it, there's no sense to it. It's, <clears throat> and I think of Boston. Boston is like that. It's irregular. It's it, based on the development of the city, the planning of it and everything. It just becomes all crazy. And then you have grid, which is what it sounds like, just straight grid. So think New York City where you know the numbers. Like, you know, it's going 101st, it's, and it's going to keep going down to 52nd. Uh, and it's very grid, very systematic. Baghdad, um, Sadr City is like that because it was built in a block pattern. So three street patterns. It's crazy, right? There, there are now more that people try to throw in there. I don't want them. I just want these three. Rig, radial, irregular, and grid. All right. I don't want to bore you on, on keep on going. This is one of the problems when I teach class. It kind of goes on longer than I wanted to, but hey, it's fine. I already talked to you about you know typology, right? So the fact that you can have a town, a city, mega city, which is over 10 million, which became really important one year. There's all these destinations. Just remember that a city by most people means it has a population of 50,000 or more. Now, density... That really, really is interesting because there's no shared definition of density, which means, and people have argued, like people tried, because if you Googled Gaza, you came up with most densest population, most one of the most densest places on the earth. It's not, not even in the top 60. Um, I've been, I've taken cadets to Mumbai, to like Davari slum, where there's a million people in a square mile. That's one of the densest, and you just think about it, Matt, you know, Manhattan. Like, um, but you know, how do people define density? Uh, most people agree that density is the number of residents per square mile. There are other other definitions, but that's the one that most people agree to. As a matter of fact, the U.S. Army kind of struggled with um, what is a dense urban area and not having a definition for it. So we created one that's not shared by anybody else, but. You know, what's what's not so dense, like if you take a city like Los Angeles, not very dense. Um, it's a mega city, so it has over 10 million residents um, in the greater Los Angeles area. But its density is nothing compared to the other mega city in the United States with a population over 10 million, which is New York City, which is a highly dense area, which actually has a has a rotational density, if you think about it, um, as people migrate. Same thing in Mumbai, into work every day. You can have a, a single square mile with 64,000 square kilometer you know, mile uh, with 64,000 people in it. And at night it has you know, 5,000 because it's a, it's a high-rise area where people work. Anyways, usually the shared definition of a dense urban area, just to use that term, is 7,000 people which isn't a lot, but per square mile. And then you have a, a high amount of density because usually then you'll have the density in physical terrain, right? Because remember, urban is the physical complex terrain, the population and infrastructure. In order to have a dense urban area, you've got to have that 7K per square mile thing. Uh, just for, so we all have a shared understanding. Okay, lastly, I think where I'll leave you is understanding building material. Like John Spencer, why does that matter? Well, if I was... As I was growing up, actually, my first duty station was jungle. Then it went to woods in like Louisiana and other places, Georgia. 
I could tell you like what type of tree you could stand behind, what kind of plants not to touch, what kind of um, stuff that made really good building material to build your whatever it is. In the urban areas, not not so much. Uh, so one of the things that we try to, if I was to have my basics, would be a part of like the briefing before you went into an urban area. Or even if you're in an urban area now, think about it. What is the building material of the places that I'm at or where I'm going? You know, they can range from everything from wood, right? Because most, let's say, United States-based homes, residential home networks are have a wood foundation. It's not the same way around the rest of the world. Matter of fact, I think that the, knowing what the the most predominant building construction is is important because guess what? It'll impact your ability to penetrate if you're talking warfare. So really, the main types of building material: are wood, mason. So that's that includes brick, um, cinder block, stone. And then you have, which is kind of the nemesis in military, depending if you're defending or attacking, reinforced concrete. What is that, John? Well, that is, if you don't know, and you see it all over, um, if that is one of the dominant ways to build, is when you reinforce poured concrete with steel rebar bars. So if you've ever seen even war and there's a bunch of metal, that's that reinforced concrete which a lot of buildings are made of actually uh and it's really hard to penetrate and, and there's some history to that then you have steel and metal of course some buildings are you know like skyscrapers and others are made of steel reinforced beams all of that um and metal and then you have some that you know i, I added this one myself because it's, it's pretty pretty legit i mean glass right you have building material that is the exterior, which is glass. But why, again, why does it matter is because many people don't understand that in the military context, if I have a weapon that doesn't have much penetration capability, you can even go to a village in, let's say, Afghanistan, which is made of 12-inch mud, and your weapons will not penetrate that. Matter of fact, in the Battle of Wei, 1968, in Wei, Vietnam, there was an ancient city with a citadel wall and a tank round couldn't penetrate it because the it was such a thick wall of ancient material that you couldn't just fire around. Now, we have these charts that people run a test, and I, and I know my friend Stu knows I want to see somebody else do it with a, do a test again where all these scientists go out and they shoot at walls of different material and see how many rounds it'll take to penetrate it, right? One of these is like, uh, did you know it'll take 100 rounds of M240, so that's 7.62 machine gun, to penetrate eight, in eight inches of reinforced concrete? I bet you didn't know, and I bet nobody in the military knows because we don't think about that. But if you're going into an urban environment, let's say you're going into anywhere where there's a lot of buildings made up of steel reinforced concrete, you know, high rises or just Soviet style apartment blocks who are made with that strong concrete blocky, but has reinforced rebar in it. It's going to make it really defendable. And if it has a basement, even more so. And then what you have that can actually penetrate into that building, whether it's aerial delivered or direct fire, 
will be considerably less effective. So it's really important to think about urban areas and it's like, oh, what, what are the main the buildings made of? Or am I going to have an issue, which is a concern of, of penetration too much? Like, like a 50 cal through houses will probably go through many houses made up of wood and plaster, uh, depending on you know, depending on it. So just in review, the things that we covered were defining urban areas, defining urban warfare, defining urban operations. And I hope um, this was useful. Really what I wanted to leave you with in the podcast is that I think this stuff should be the basics. I think it should be at that lowest level of Bloom's taxonomy of the basic knowledge of science. And that is military science. So the use military operations, whether it's even if you're doing disaster relief, understanding the what the buildings are made of, because there's all kinds of building materials, depending on where you're talking about in the world, that are earthquake um, resistant, or they can they, it actually bends bends to the wind. If you're high rise, I mean, it, it's really flammable. Uh, there's a lot of like you know, this is kind of the geeky stuff that I do. A lot of things that have happened, like with fires and urban warfare, because the building material is actually made of an exterior plaster that is really flammable. Um, is why we talk to fire departments a lot of times and stuff. But it's an aside. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Urban 101 quick audio that I teach. You can actually go onto my YouTube page and, I, and there's some slides to it. But like I said, other than the picture of the building, maybe it helps you a little bit, but hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out MDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.